From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. We are now in the middle of a new wave of COVID, but the community's mood has changed a great deal from earlier times. Despite having passed 10,000 deaths, nearly 8,000 of them this year, there is little appetite by governments or, it seems, the public to go back to tough restrictions. Even the take-up of booster vaccines is not as comprehensive as might be hoped. The Labor government has stepped up the action on COVID with a campaign to encourage vaccination, action on antivirals and the widening of eligibility for a fourth shot. But it declined to extend the payment for people having to isolate with COVID, and nor will it extend free rat tests for concession card holders. It cites budgetary constraints. Today, Health Minister Mark Butler joins us to talk about the issues around COVID in 2022. Mark Butler, how serious is this COVID wave, and do you think it will worsen during the rest of the winter? I think the the general advice is that uh, we haven't reached the peak of the wave yet. Uh, case numbers are going to continue to climb over over coming weeks. I don't think we know exactly how many more weeks it's going to take to peak, but case numbers will continue to climb, <clears throat> and as a result, um, hospitalisations are going to continue to climb as well. Given the seriousness of it, do you think that we need a mindset? shift away from thinking that this is something that we must just live with? Well, I think this is a question of, of, of balance, really, Michelle, and the chief health officers have been increasing their advice as the, the scale of the third Omicron wave for 2022 becomes clearer to them. So late last week, you, you will have seen that they uh, issued some stronger advice about mask wearing in crowded indoor spaces and also asked employers to consider whether or not there was the scope for more working from home arrangements. Uh, And you've seen at the very least the Victorian government respond to that over the last 24 hours. And I've had quite a bit to say myself um, in the media about the importance of people wearing masks in crowded indoor spaces where there's not the ability to socially distance. Now, that's not in the form of a mandate. That was not the advice from the Chief Health Officers last week. And I think that gives you a sense of the new phase of the pandemic that we've moved into deep into the third year. But there is no question, I think, that the health authorities, including the chief health officers, are concerned about the potential scale of this wave. The fact that it comes in winter as well, which means that hospital systems have to deal with the impact of COVID cases while they're also dealing with flu cases and the usual business of a hospital during winter. So we are moving to a situation where we're trying more aggressively to prevent or limit transmission. Well, there's cert- <clears throat> I think there's certainly advice about things people can do to limit transmission, either around workplace arrangements or particularly wearing masks more than I think had been common over the last several months. There's very clear evidence, and I think you know people accept, I'm sure, given our, our experience of the last couple of years, that wearing a mask does reduce transmission. Um, so that's important to do. Understanding, of course, that really, um, you know, we're not going to move into lockdowns. Uh, we're not going to see very broad-based mandates or government orders. Uh, there are going to be uh, many hundreds of thousands of cases over coming weeks. We're, you know, right now we have 300,000 or so Australians officially 
reported as having COVID today. And based on what we know about unreported cases, because people might be asymptomatic or for a range of other reasons, that number is is in reality quite a bit quite a bit higher than that. So, you know, we're we're, we're confronting these waves in 2022, which have vast numbers of cases running to hundreds of thousands or, or even millions of cases. The the primary the the particular focus. <clears throat> that I'm bringing to this particular wave, and I think state health authorities are as well, is not only how do we keep transmission as low as possible, but particularly how do we minimise the the number of severe cases that might end up in hospital or or even worse. And that's why we've focused so much on expanding access to the fourth dose for older Australians or Australians aged over 50, and particularly important, uh, expanding access to the antiviral treatments that we know are highly effective at reducing severe disease, highly effective at reducing the risk of hospitalisation, but for the last few months too often have been stuck on shelves in warehouses rather than getting out to the community. You've indicated you think people have some pandemic fatigue. Does this make being as aggressive as possible in trying to limit transmission, for example, mandating masks or working from home, does this make it more difficult to take those steps? Well, I think it does, and I think that the, the health authorities recognise that as much as um, other political leaders. That in order to get a get a balanced community response, you you need to have a mix of targeted mandates, and we have them. We've had them all through the course of this year. So, for example, um, visitors to aged care facilities, to health facilities, public transport, aeroplanes, either where there's very high risk of transmission, <clears throat> or where there's a population at high risk of severe illness, there are mandates and you will continue to see those targeted mandates, I think, for some time. But beyond that, there is really strong advice, clear advice given to people about about, um, using the common sense lessons that we've learned over the last couple of years and and applying their own behaviour to the circumstances. And I think that's what you've seen over the last few days. The Chief Health Officers lift the, the... strength of their language around the importance of mask wearing in particular in crowded indoor spaces. It's an interesting point you make about the health authorities reading the mood because this does confuse things a bit, doesn't it? One would expect the health experts to be pure, as it were, to say what they thought based simply on the health considerations, but we seem to perhaps have moved into a more nuanced phase on their part. Well, the chief health officers who've just worked so hard over the last couple of years to protect our community, yes, their job is public health, but they live in the real world and they understand as well as anyone, even more than anyone perhaps, the need to ensure that the messages and the work of government and public health authorities um, is well calibrated to the community's tolerance to continue to work under very strict government orders. I mean, what we don't want to end up uh, with is a position where the community thinks government is is being heavy-handed um, or just continuing a situation which the community tolerated very well over the first two or two, particularly the first two years of the pandemic, but I think is starting to reach the end of their tether about. So uh, a mix of targeted, more forensic mandates and orders that, that, as I say, really focus on those areas of highest highest risk transmission and highest risk severe disease with some very clear advice that, that I think the community understands 
when they hear it, is, is not given lightly, um, is given because there is concern about the scale of this third wave. We're also seeing state health ministers, such as in Victoria, starting to reject the advice of their health officers. Uh, The Victorian minister, for example, this week has uh, strongly recommended that people wear masks rather than reintroducing a mandate as the uh, state acting chief health officer had recommended. What responsibility do you think governments have to listen to and abide by their health experts? Well, the ultimate responsibility in in the sense that um, the political leadership, government leadership, whether that's premiers or health ministers, ultimately have to um, listen carefully to the health advice uh, and, and apply that advice in the pe- best possible way to their state. Um, now, I think we're at a phase in the pandemic uh, where you are seeing um, much more nuanced advice from chief health officers. I, I've referred to the advice that came out of the meeting of all chief health officers only at the end of last week, it was published on Friday, um, that strongly encouraged mask wearing in crowded indoor spaces and 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 you know, the, the language around working from home. Uh, and, uh, and I see the, the advice um, from the Victorian Health Minister is, is very closely reflecting that, that statement from AHPPC, the, the committee of all of the chief health officers in the country. And really what you find now, I think, uh, at least as we, as we stand while recording this, Michelle, is the Victorian advice from the Victorian Health Minister is probably the strongest advice of any jurisdiction in the country right now. Now, COVID antivirals have been made available for people over 70 and those with underlying health conditions, but many people struggle to get an appointment to see a doctor. Isn't this going to be a problem in coming weeks? And could these drugs be available directly through chemists with whatever appropriate controls and reporting? Well, on that second on that second point, that that's not my advice. Um, I mean, these medicines, as you will have, you will have heard a number of um, health bodies say this, including the AMA. These medicines do have um, quite complex interactions with other medicines you might be taking, uh, and you know, many people over seventy, if not the vast majority of people over seventy, are are taking other medicines, whether that's for blood pressure or cholesterol or a range of other things. And so it is important to have a discussion with your GP about what other medicines you are on before you get a script for these antivirals. They're very effective at reducing severe disease, but they do have those interactions with other medicines, which I think is why it's important for you to have that discussion with your GP. Um, you're right, people are having difficulty getting an appointment with their GP. I mean, that has been the case for some years now. I talked about that into the lead into the election campaign. And, you know, we can't pluck a whole bunch of GPs off a magic tree to, to add to the system right now. I, I accept this is, this is going to be a challenge. And that is why I and really all of the health authorities, the chief health officers, have advised people, particularly if you're over 70 or if you are over 50 with, with those risk factors that we've identified, uh, you might have diabetes, you, you might have a range of other conditions, we're encouraging you to have a talk to your GP before you get COVID um, so that you have a plan, you've worked through that discussion with your GP and so that if you've had that discussion, you're cleared for one of the two drugs, Molnupiravir or Paxlovid, 
um, then, then in the event that you do get a COVID positive test, often what they'll do is they'll simply take a phone call to reception to say, I've got a positive test or the GP will find out you've got a positive test and the script will be arranged automatically. It will be sent electronically to your pharmacy. Uh, then you can have someone pick the, pick the medicines up and deliver them to your home. So that really is the ideal. It takes a bit of planning, but frankly, people um, of that older age or with risk factors should be making a COVID plan anyway. Make sure, making sure you have, you know, medicines and lots of liquids in your house in the event that you get that positive test and need to isolate immediately. This is just another aspect of that COVID plan. Just on the question of the challenges in getting to actually see a doctor, patients wanting to see a GP will no longer be able to access telehealth for longer consultations. Why have you decided to cut that now or gone ahead with cutting that now just when COVID case numbers are rising? Well, they will be able to use telehealth uh, for all consultations. The, the decision that the former government took and telegraphed some months ago was that from the 1st of July, for consultations over 20 minutes, so for long, complex consultations, that telehealth consult should be should involve face-to-face engagement. So it would be over FaceTime or some other video app. This has been a decision um, telegraphed to the GP sector for many, many months, um, including as recently, I think, as, as April by the former Minister Greg Hunt. And there, and there is, you know, good advice about why when you're having longer complex consultations, it is important to have that face-to-face engagement. For short or standard consults up to 20 minutes, um, you still are able to have a phone consult beyond the 1st of July. And that accounts, um, I'm advised, for about six out of every seven telehealth consultations are less than 20 minutes. So you will be able to do that either over the phone or over face to FaceTime or some other video app. But the advice for some time as we've as we've seen telehealth develop is that for those longer complex consultations, it is important for doctor and patient to have face-to-face engagement. Pandemic leave payments came to an end last month. As COVID case numbers rise, isn't there a risk that more people will go to work when they are sick because they simply can't afford to take the time off? These, these emergency payment arrangements that were agreed between the former government and states were designed to, to finish on the 30th of June. Um, they are quite extraordinary emergency payments. Uh, and really, whatever point in time they, they cease is going to have an impact on the community. I've, <clears throat> I've acknowledged that on a number of occasions. Um, they are hard decisions for a government not to continue those emergency payments. But as a number of us, from the Prime Minister to the Treasurer to myself, have made clear over the last few days, we've taken the hard view that we, we simply can't continue emergency payments, very expensive emergency payments forever with a budget that's a trillion dollars in debt and many tens of billions of dollars in deficit uh, for, for year after year after year. Um, you know, there, there just isn't the financial capacity to continue that forever. So, unfortunately, at whatever point in time uh, that, that discontinuance takes place, there is going to be a, a very hard impact on the community. I've acknowledged that. I regret that. But, you know, we've taken the view as a government that at some point those emergency payments can't continue to be made on borrowed money. 
Is this a bit of a difference between government and opposition? Because one suspects if you'd still been in opposition, you would have been saying to the government, you should be continuing the payments. Well, that's a hypothetical. I can't comment on, on that, Michelle. I think what it does reflect is, is us moving into a different phase of the pandemic, as we've talked about. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the difficult reality we're, we're facing and we're seeing play out right now is that, you know, at different points over the course of this pandemic, we've all, we've all hoped uh, and maybe concluded that, that maybe this thing's over. And um, every time that's been the case, this virus has mutated again. It's become more infectious. It keeps coming back, uh, and so um, you know we we are moving into a different phase of the pandemic where we we recognise that the virus is endemic in Australia. It's deeply established. You know we've got millions of people have had it. Hundreds of thousands of people have it right today, and we need to find a response to that pan, that pandemic uh, that reflects that. Um, that we have moved out of an emergency phase, if you like, which involves emergency payments, a very big budget response that's landed the budget in very deep debt, uh, to, to, to one that focuses on giving um, the maximum possible support to the community and focusing, focusing very, very clearly on the critical importance of reducing severe disease and pressure on our hospitals. Well, just talking about that pressure on the hospitals, public hospitals are now struggling with COVID and with a backlog of cases of other conditions that have been left untreated during the pandemic, and it's likely to get worse before it gets better. What can your government do now to ensure that Australians have access to hospital care if and when they need it? And I'll just add to to that um, commentary, Michelle, of yours, flu, um, you know, the last the, the, the last very big wave of Omicron was in January, uh, where we had about 5,500 people in hospital with COVID. We're not there yet. We're, we're at about 4,500 right now. But what wasn't the case in January is, is what we see now with flu cases in our hospital system, as well as, as all, all of those deferred cases you talked about. So there's no question there's very serious pressure on our hospital system right now. The intensive care numbers are... Um, I'm pleased to say much lower than they were in January because in January, although the Omicron variant was driving the big increase in case numbers, there were still a lot of Delta cases, if people remember the variant from last year. There were still a lot of Delta cases in the community which was, which was um, associated with much more severe illness because it got into the lungs much more than Omicron does. So there were, there were many more people in ICU or intensive care units back in January than we see today. But, but there's no question, there's big pressure on our hospital system. Uh, and you've got a workforce that has just worked so hard for the last two and a half years. Many of them are, are exhausted. Many of them are having to isolate because of COVID themselves. Uh, and that is why um, the, the Prime Minister, the Premiers and Chief Ministers a couple of weeks ago at their first National Cabinet meeting decided to extend our support arrangements for hospital systems um, beyond the expiry date that the former Morrison government had put in place of September. So we've invested another or, or more than three quarters of a billion dollars to, to extend those COVID support arrangements that were negotiated early in the pandemic between the Commonwealth and states. Um, now that will, that will, I think, provide much needed support, but it won't change the fact that our hospital system remains under very real pressure, which is why my focus has been so squarely 
on on things that can be that can be put in place to reduce the number of severe cases of COVID in the community that are at risk of ending up in hospital. Fourth doses for older people uh, and much broader access to those antiviral medicines. The um, hospital systems around the country in general seem to be uh, in a state of really bad repair. I remember when Kevin Rudd was campaigning, and no doubt you do too, that he was going to fix the hospital system. Do we need root and branch reform of the system? You're right, I do remember that that, that period in the lead into the 2007 campaign and, and the state hospital systems back then were... were starting to deal with big budget cuts that came out of the 2004 budget from the Howard government where they walked away for the first time from 50-50 funding arrangements. And it didn't take long for state hospitals to be under enormous pressure. So you saw the level of pressure, I think, in the hospital system back then, which obviously did not have a pandemic in place, of the type you, you were seeing um, right now. When I was travelling in the so-called COVID-free states last year, uh, in Queensland and WA and Tasmania and South Australia, they'd had, they had no COVID at the time. Uh, they, had, they hadn't had flu cases for a couple of years. But still, back then, the hospital systems across those states were dealing with very high levels of ambulance ramping, um, very high levels of, of, of overcrowding in their emergency departments and more broadly in their wards. So, yeah, yes, the pandemic is undoubtedly aggravating this and exacerbating the pressure on hospitals but there is underlying pressure in our hospital system because at the same time over the last decade you've had you know, changes in our population with ageing, with an increased incidence of complex chronic disease. You've seen really a winding back of support from the former government to general practice. You've seen um, cuts in staffing levels in nursing homes, a range of other things that are happening out in our community, which means that people too often have to end up in an emergency department in spite of the fact that could be quite adequately cared for in general practice or in aged care facilities if those staffing arrangements were properly in place. So yes, we, we are going to have to have uh, a good, long, hard talk to states about the position of the hospital system. And out of National Cabinet, the head of Prime Minister and Cabinet and his colleagues that head the Premier's departments are working on that right now. Um, but we also need to recognise that a lot of the pressure on our hospital uh, hospitals reflect the, the running down of general practice, the running down of aged care staffing arrangements. And, and as the Commonwealth has responsibility directly for those areas, the best thing we can do in the immediate term to relieve pressure on our hospitals is to rebuild general practice, to strengthen Medicare and to put nurses back into nursing homes so that people can be cared for right there rather than consistently being put into ambulances and shift off, shifted off to hospital. Well, how can you do any of these things, though? How, how do you get more doctors? Do we train them in our universities or do we get them through immigration and in the workforce more generally? How are you going to substantially boost numbers in aged care and, and the health workforce uh, supporting hospitals? Well, th this is probably the biggest question in the health portfolio. When I met with my colleague health ministers the week before last, we we agreed that this would this would be the um, a very big focus of our work together, and we've we've um, we've agreed to meet on a monthly basis, which is very unusual, and to have a very early meeting dedicated just to these workforce challenges. 
at the end of the day, we can't train new doctors overnight. I think all of your listeners understand that, Michelle. It takes a long time to train a doctor. Uh, and we, but we have to turn around the fact that, for example, less than 15%, 1-5% of medical graduates today are choosing to go into general practice. Not too long ago, that, that figure was about half. Half of medical graduates were going to general practice. So we've got, to, we've got to find a way to rebuild the esteem and the viability of Medicare and general practice so that our youngest doctors see that as an attractive career for them. And they just don't now after nine or 10 years of neglect of Medicare. Um, so that's some of our longer term challenge in the immediate. But how do you do that? What are one or two good ideas even to do that? Well, I mean, we put Medicare and general practice right at the centre of our, our health policy for the election. You know, we I made no bones about the fact that my single uh, most important priority, if I was lucky enough to become health minister, would be rebuilding general practice. I mean, part of it is improving the financial viability of the model, um, you know, bringing new models like urgent care into general practice, you know, our, our, our $250 million per year investment in strengthening Medicare that I'll be working with the sector over the rest of the year to implement. Part of it's about making Medicare more sustainable, more viable, but also lifting the, 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 the esteem of general practice, which too often now is seen as sort of the, the, the B grade version of a medical career compared to hospital-based specialties. I really want to change that, but we're not going to do that overnight after 10 years of neglect. In the, in the more immediate term, um, you're right, you mentioned the fact that we, we are going to need to uh, improve immigration for, for doctors and nurses and other health workers. The truth is Australia has always relied on a mix of Australian-trained and overseas-trained doctors and nurses and health workers. And I think there is much that we can do to smooth the way for people trained overseas who want to come and spend some time working as a doctor or a nurse in Australia to do that. I mean, too often I hear stories literally of people taking years to get from the point of being recruited over in the UK or India or somewhere else, from, from the point of being recruited to actually ending up on the floor of a hospital or an aged care facility or a general practice surgery. I mean, that is ridiculous. We've got to improve visa processing times. We've got to improve the regulatory approvals here in Australia once they arrive so that we can deal with what are very, very severe workforce shortages right through our health and aged care system. You've got the job summit coming up in early September. Will the whole question of the healthcare workforce, the shortages, the problems attracting people be issues that will be discussed and promoted at that meeting? Most definitely. Um, and this job summit is intended to cover the whole of the economy, uh, from traditional industry through to the care economy, the service sector. And you would have heard the Prime Minister and the Treasurer during the election campaign and in the lead-up, I'm talking about just how central the care economy is to modern Australia. We know that the engine room of jobs growth really over coming years and decades will come from the health sector, the aged care, disability and early childhood sectors. So, you know, there will be a, a strong discussion, strong representation at the Jobs Summit around the care economy as it, as it will with other sectors of the economy. 
Mark Butler, thank you very much for talking with us today and uh, sharing your information and uh, your plans. And that's all from today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.